Thank you, DCS Choir, for sharing with us this morning. Appreciate your ministry of music, and that was such a beautiful song. Thank you. Well, as they uh, continue to exit here, I'll introduce myself. Um, I am Aaron Hedges. For those of you who are visiting with us today, I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors at Delaware Bible Church and am in my seventh year doing that. Uh, I've also had the honor to teach two senior, uh, two high school Bible classes this year. In my first three years at Delaware Bible Church, I uh, taught middle school Bible as one of my responsibilities, and then I was transitioned out of the classroom for three years, and then this year I uh, entered back into it, as God would have it, and uh, next year, if, if, if he blesses plans that have been made, I'll be teaching all four high school Bible classes uh, starting next year. And so if you're here in the audience because your high school student was with us today, if I don't have them this year, I'll have them next year. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if they are, um, but, uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to teaching them. Today's text is going to be found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. I invite you to uh, turn there, and I will join you here in a moment. <clears throat> but to share a little bit more about myself, particularly for those of you who don't know me, um, I'll, I'll give you the, the quick facts. I'm 37 years old. I've been married to my wife, Alicia, for 15 years. Alicia serves as Delaware Christian School's intervention specialist. And so we, we both have the pleasure of serving the school in various roles. Uh, we have two children, uh, Ellie, who is seven, and Ethan, who is five. They both go to Delaware Christian School, and we, we, we enjoy the opportunity for all the Hedges family to be on campus every day throughout the school year. Um, we learned a couple months ago that we are now expecting our third, and so we're looking forward to that. Uh, so we're, we're expecting our new arrival in September, if, if everything goes according to plan. Um, I have spent about 16 or 17 years now in ministry of, of different kinds, and have just enjoyed a wide variety of responsibilities over that time. And uh, the reason I, I, sh I share that with you is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the earlier end of the parenting journey, right? My oldest is seven, um, but I, because of what God has given me the privilege to do uh, for what's, you know, we're getting close to two decades now, I feel like I've been watching families raise teenagers for almost 20 years. And so I don't have them, I have any of my own but I've seen a lot of film. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'll give you a, a, a sports analogy. Uh, one, of, one of my, well, my favorite sport is baseball. And uh, as if the last couple years haven't been hard enough, uh, now it looks like some regular season games are gonna be canceled if they can't come to some kind of agreement with the, uh, between the players union and the owners. Uh, but I love the sport, always have it seems, and one of my favorite films is called Moneyball, uh, starring Brad Pitt as general manager Billy Bean, who uh, kind of rose to fame when the Oakland Athletics uh, didn't have the budget to keep their star players, and so they, act, they, got, they had to get rid of them all and basically start from scratch. The question is, how can you put a winning team on the field without star power? And a lot of credit goes to Billy Bean, but I believe it was actually this guy who was responsible for his success. 
the, the, the person you see on screen is the film character Peter Brand. Now, if you've ever seen Moneyball, you may not know Peter Brand doesn't exist. This is a character in a film based on the true life person named Paul D. Podesta. Paul D. Podesta graduated from Harvard with a degree in economics, found himself shortly after working with the Cleveland Indians. They were the Indians then, so that's what I'm going to call them. <laughs> so, while working with the Cleveland Indians, he was getting uh, kind of uh, deeply involved in statistics and analytics. Uh, he became uh, familiar, one of the greater uh, supporters of what's called sabermetrics. Sabermetrics, uh, it comes from the uh, four letters, S-A-B-R, which stands for the Society of American Baseball Research. And the basic thrust or belief of that organization is that success in baseball may actually have more to do with math than star power. That maybe we can put a winning team on the field based on statistics and analyzing a lot of footage and looking at what a player actually does, regardless of whatever the name is on the back of their jersey. And so by these two forces coming together, Paul DePodesta and Billy Bean, the Oakland Athletics, the season after losing all of their star players, won 20 games in a row during the season and got into the playoffs on one of the smallest payrolls in baseball. It has been coined the term now, Moneyball, and many baseball organizations to this day try to implement some of the lessons learned from that time. Paul DiBattista was known for spending a lot of time in the film room and used a lot of footage to make his case that certain players ought to be hired and put on the field despite the managers never even ever hearing of them. But they did what they were supposed to do, and the Oakland A's had a successful season. All that to say, I feel like I'm a guy standing before you today who's seen a lot of film. I've seen a lot of statistics play out. I've analyzed a lot of what I've seen. And so while I'm earlier on the parenting journey myself, I feel like I've been through uh, the circumstances many of you are in by watching many others go through it year after year after year. And because of that, I believe that I have a valuable perspective to offer you, and, I, and I'm confident in stating that because I believe it's a per perspective shared from God's Word. Before we get to God's Word this morning, I also want to address the elephant in the room. And that elephant is that Delaware Bible Church is a church to many homeschool families, many Delaware Christian school families, and some other families who have chosen public school and other forms of education. And after all the film I've seen, I've concluded there's no such thing as a magic bullet. No guarantees based on the method of education you choose. I've seen homeschool kids thrive while Christian school students fail. I've seen public school students thrive and homeschool students fail, along with every other possible scenario. I'll even give you bullet points of a story. I won't mention her name because I don't want to embarrass her and I didn't ask for her permission to share this with you. I had a student uh, over the years who I have now come to see as one of the greatest Christians I have the privilege of knowing. It started when I first knew her as a sixth grader. She came from a home that was broken in every sense of the word. 
Her biological parents were no longer together. Attempted remarriages had also failed. Sometimes her parents would spend time in jail as a result of drug use and distribution. She was educated at her local public school. And oftentimes, uh, her parents would not even know where she was and, and didn't care as long as they woke up in the morning and she was in the house. Now, on paper, this student should not have thrived, but she did. And I watched her grow and flourish in her relation with the Lord and now counted a privilege that I was a small part of it. She's married today to a wonderful Christian man. They have two children of their own and recently have moved back to the state of Ohio and she's reached out to us and we're hoping to make a connection here someday years after she graduated from me being a pastor to her. But the reality is, if she were here with you today, I'm sure she'd tell you she was an exception. Our God is a God of exceptions. She's a testimony to what God is capable of doing. And while that story is inspiring and true, I also want to say that expecting the exception to, the, to be the rule is not a sound parenting strategy. To recognize the power of God and then abdicate our responsibility to disciple our children is a mistake. Just because she made it doesn't mean all others will. Apart from that, I've come to believe that a student's spiritual success rests primarily on the sovereign grace of God. I've also come to believe that students who have been best set up to receive that work of God in their lives is more often connected to their parents' commitment to God than the method of education their parents have chosen. That's the thread that seems to weave through all of them who I've considered to be a success. Coming from homes with parents who loved the Lord and took their God-given responsibility seriously. And so let's look to that word this morning on some instruction on what that commitment ought to look like. And that's what brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I love this book. Those who know me well have had me in class or heard me preach know that I love the Old Testament. It's so good. And there's many themes established in the Old Testament that were reaffirmed in the New by Jesus himself. And one of the principles that, that he reaffirmed in the New Testament is one that we'll be looking at today. If we had the time, I would simply just read all of the book of Deuteronomy with you. It's a wonderful book. It, you could read the book of Deuteronomy and have a pretty full understanding of what God's done through and for his people in the first four before it. It's a wonderful summary of the greatness of God despite the lack of greatness shown by his people. These words that come to us this morning come from Moses, who would not be permitted to enter into the promised land, even though they are finally able to go in. And that is not only because of the sinful choices of the older generation of Israelites, and therefore had to wander in the wilderness, but it was also because of his own sinful choices. And so his punishment would be the same as many of the people he led, that he would not be able to go in. And so what you're hearing are the words of a man who know, knows that his time with these people has drawn to an end. What would this man say? Knowing that this would be his last opportunity. 
we come in the midst of his speech in chapter 11, and I, I believe that what we owe this text is to simply hear the chapter. Let Moses speak for himself. Knowing the circumstances facing him, he says this, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in to take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, that you may live long in the land, that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables." But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children be multiplied in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river to the river Euphrates to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Morah? For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Reflecting upon this part of Moses' moving sermon, I believe it would be appropriate to ask two questions. The first of which is this. What is the path of blessing to God's people? And I believe this chapter succinctly answers that in three points. The first of which is we are to love God above all else. And I've cited for you the verses that reiterate that principle just in chapter 11 alone. But this is a theme established all throughout God's word. In fact, it's one of them that binds the Old and New Testament together. Jesus himself would reiterate in his teachings that loving God first and foremost is an expectation of God for his people. In fact, he established this theme in the first two of the commandments given to the people of Israel. That they should serve and worship only God. And that they should never craft an image for worship of something lesser. Secondly, we are to display a love for God through our obedience to his word. Multiple times you see Moses addressing, as it were, the adults in the room. He made a specific reference that he was teaching a group of people and that some of what he had to say wasn't relevant yet to the children who had not seen the great things God has done. He said, I'm talking to you. Those of you who've seen what his mighty hand is capable of doing, there are things you need to do. And over and over and over again, it was the theme, obey God's word. Obey his commandments, his statutes, his rules. Live according to his sovereign will. And then thirdly, They are to impress a love for God and obedience to his word on the hearts of their children. So parents and grandparents in the room, these are expectations God has for you. Whether it's Deuteronomy 6, where Moses first mentions the words that he later mentions again in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Or it's Ephesians chapter 6, God is clear. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to disciple our children in the knowledge and instruction of God's word, to impress on their hearts a love for him, and to learn how to demonstrate that love through obedience to what he has established. That's our responsibility. And the path to blessing belongs to those who do that. All throughout Scripture, there are examples of people who took that path. And that path is filled with people who loved God first and foremost, who showed that love through their obedience to His Word and impressed a love for Him and a love for obeying Him on the hearts of their children. 
Moses lays out another path, the path of cursing. And that belonged to those who forsook all three of those things. So God's word's quite clear. If we want the path of blessing, this is what it looks like. But I believe there's a second question that we can ask today. Before we do, I apologize that the text on the screen is likely too little for you. I'll read it. R.C. Sproul once said, in reflecting on this passage, I don't think that there's a mandate to be found in sacred scripture that is more solemn than this one. That we are to teach our children the truth of God's word is a sacred, holy responsibility that God gives to his people. And it's not something that is to be done only one day a week in Sunday school, or might I add, five days a week in Bible class. We can't abdicate the responsibility to the church, or might I add, a Christian school. The primary responsibility for the education of children according to Scripture is the family, the parents. An institution ordained by God before even the local church. And has been, since its institution, His primary way of reaching the world with the truth of His Word. They would be passed on from parents to children to generations not even born. The commitment would be resolved to do so. The second question is this. How can parents impress a love for God and obedience to His Word on the hearts of their children? I believe the Bible addresses this question also in a variety of places that I would like to go to with you. But the first step, I believe, is to demonstrate their own faith. Parents and grandparents in the room, if you are in relationship with Christ, if He is Lord of your life, then you must demonstrate that reality to the children and grandchildren He has given you. You see, you impress what you have. You cannot impart what you don't possess. In seeing a lot of the film over the years, I can also tell you this. It seems to be the case that in discipleship, you replicate who you are, not what you hope you would be. We replicate who we are. We've all been in, at times in situations where our children or grandchildren have done something, said something, acted in a way, and it, it cut us to the core. And our response to that was maybe even emotional. But the reason we're reacting that way is because we knew deep down that what we saw, what we heard in that moment was us. Hasn't that happened to you? Oh my goodness, that sounded just like me. Our children and grandchildren are mirrors reflecting the example that they see every day from you and me. We replicate who we are. And on that, who we are at home is who we really are. It's not necessarily the who we are at work, the who we are at church, the who we are on social media when everything's kind of tweaked just right so that life looks perfect. It's who we are at home. That's who we really are. That's what our children and grandchildren are seeing that's what's being reproduced in their lives. I once had coffee with a good friend, a wise man. 
And we were discussing this issue, and he said, you know, it's kind of like cleaning your room. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, when we're teaching our children how to properly clean and take care of their rooms, he said, you basically have two ways to go about it, one less successful than the other. The less successful way is to be in their room and to just give them commands of where everything goes and how to keep everything in order and keep everything organized. I said, well, that kind of makes sense to me. What do you suggest is more effective? He said, keeping my own room clean. He said, if I could tell my child, come, son, let me show you what a clean room ought to look like, then the behavior more often follows. He said, but if I get on my son about his uh, messy room and he, he comes into mine and it's in disarray, then why would he do what I say? Now, folks, we're not just talking about cleaning rooms this morning. We're talking about discipling souls. But it's still true. We can profess one thing but live another. And they must be the same in order for it to be effective. The Bible has a lot to say about this, a couple passages that come to mind. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. He ought to be our one and only. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Everything you got. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that we are to seek the kingdom of God first, above all else. In Matthew 13, he gives us two examples of what that looks like. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In both scenarios... Those outside, ignorantly looking in, would have thought both men were foolish. Why is he buying that field? There's nothing there. Why is he buying that one thing? He sells everything, bought the one, what's going on there? The guy's wasting his money. But see, people who live seeking the kingdom of God first will look foolish to a world who doesn't know Christ. It's one way in which God does what he said he would do and what he continues to do, which is to use the foolish to confound the wise. We will look, act, think, talk, and relate differently. You see, our value system is God's value system, which is not the value system of this world. And the more that we line up our life with the truth of his word, the more his value system becomes our own, the more different we become from others. And then Matthew 5, 16 finally works. That that our light so shines before men that when they see our good works, they glorify our Father who is in heaven. They might be compelled to ask, what makes you so different? The way you relate to one another, what you choose to prioritize... Is it possible that in allowing our family culture to be more informed by the world than God's word, we've lost countless opportunities to shine the light? Secondly, I believe it's through demonstrating our faith that we show them how to care for others. Caring for others becomes a, a clear way to show them that, that, that our faith is real. 
The, the Bible speaks to this also. In Mark 12, 31, it, it, Jesus says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, that and to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But to love others as yourself is equally important. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That that's how they'll identify us. That's what makes us different from everyone else, is seeking out the interests of others. In fact, Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, looking for those opportunities to serve, to help, to console, to provide. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how you care for others. It's setting yourself aside. And it's one of the most distinct ways we demonstrate our faith to our children and help them understand it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you, son or daughter. It's about God and serving him. And the way he's instructed us to do that is to care for other people, to seek their interests above our own. So we care for others. And lastly, it's by studying to the best of their ability. Yes, parents and grandparents in the room, this applies to you. The Bible speaks to this also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 25, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Parents and grandparents, are you running? Are you exerting yourself for the cause of Christ? Are you demonstrating your faith to your children and grandchildren by letting them see how committed you are to his mission in this world? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do they see that in your life? Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Demonstrate your faith. Care for others. Study to the best of your ability. These are the things we can do to impress a love for God on the hearts of our children and impress on their hearts a desire, not just out of obligation, but with joy obedience to his word. You may have noticed the last three points in your outline looked awfully familiar. And that was purposeful. Where does Delaware Christian School fit into all of this? Delaware Christian School's mission statement says this, DCS partners with parents and students to promote academic excellence while developing lifelong learners who embrace a biblical worldview. I support that mission statement, and I believe a very critical word, a very important word in that mission statement is partners. What does that word imply? It implies partnership. But what does that mean? A lot of trouble in our society today is a failure to define our words. 
resulting in a lot of arguments because we have varying definitions. So let's define this one, or let Webster do it and make it easy. A partnership is a relationship resembling a legal partnership and usually involving close cooperation between parties having specified and joint rights and responsibilities. I believe that accurately describes the partnership Delaware Christian School seeks to enter into with parents and grandparents in our community. The mistake is to think of this partnership as 50-50, because it's not. That's not what partnership means. Partnership doesn't mean you raise your kids for 16 hours a day, and we'll raise them eight hours a day. You raise your kids, we're out. That's your responsibility. Well, what's our responsibility? We offer to come alongside you and help to educate. Reading, writing, arithmetic, biblical history. Those are our responsibilities. You see, it's not you do half, we do half. It's that you do all of some things and we do all of others. Hundred, hundred. And we must distinctly understand those roles and responsibilities. One of the ways in which Delaware Christian School has sought to uh, live out this mission here is by what they call the DCS way. And it fits the second half of your outline. That what we are looking to do here is to encourage students to demonstrate their faith, to care for others, and to study to the best of their ability. However, I believe that there's an important piece to that puzzle, that if missing, creates a problem. And if you'll further indulge me a few more illustrations, it's like a key that unlocks the potential for that to work, the ingredient that brings the meal together, the link in the chain that if missing makes the chain useless, it's you. Parents and grandparents, it's you. We need you to do what God has called you to do. Disciple your children and grandchildren. We need this as much now as ever before. Natasha Crane said in a recently published book, we are in a culture where feelings are the ultimate guide, happiness the ultimate goal, judging the ultimate sin, and God the ultimate yes. And she's right. We're, we're in a very confusing time, particularly in our country. So I have some steps for you, some steps of application as we close our time together. You should find them in your outline. But I must warn you, the order is purposeful. The first suggestion I have for you is to plan a family dinner. And the sad truth is, this actually has to be planned now. That many of our families have become so overcommitted and busy that planning dinner is the only way dinner together will actually happen. So plan a family dinner. And have conversation there to assess everyone's commitments and responsibilities. Evaluate how your family schedule reflects those priorities. And determine where your commitment to God is represented in the family schedule commitments and responsibilities and whether or not he is clearly number one in your family. If an outside observer could look at your family schedule, would they deduce that there's something different about your family than the rest of the world or just about the same? 
There's nothing magical about family dinner, but in the footage I've seen and that others have seen, it does seem to be a bellwether for whether or not other healthy practices are taking place in that family. In fact, the secular world has observed this. Family therapist Ann Fischel, who founded the Family Dinner Project, said this for the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Regular family dinners are associated with lower rates of depression and anxiety and substance abuse and eating disorders and tobacco use and early teenage pregnancy and higher rates of resilience and higher self-esteem. I have interacted with countless students demonstrating the various things that she addresses in that short statement. And in almost every instance, that child's family is fragmented, more apart than together, and family dinner wouldn't happen in their wildest imagination. Perhaps there's something to it. Don't take her word for it. How about another pastor? Tim Chalise, who pastors Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Ontario, wrote an article called Five Reasons We Eat Together as a Family. Those reasons are, he believes it produces physical health, relational health, spiritual health, financial health, and behavioral health. And I would commend Tim Chalee's teaching and writing to you any day of the week. And he has found this to be a vibrant part of his family. Number two, schedule a family game night and conversation to talk honestly about what is prized most in the family. Some questions you could ask are the following. Do we celebrate achievement or character? You might wonder what I'm talking about there. Take this for instance. You talk to your child after a game, and maybe you were working the concession stand, so you missed most of it. And your first question might often be, how'd you do? Well, the kinds of answers you get is what? How many points they scored? How many rebounds they got? How many assists they made? What are we celebrating there? Achievement. But what if our questions were, hey, son, how did you support your teammates today? Was there a time where you were tempted to react poorly to the official, but you showed him the respect his position deserves? How did you support your coach and serve him during the game today? Now what are you focusing on? Character. So what do we celebrate more as a family? Achievement or character? Do we invest more in temporary or eternal things? Your schedules will tell you that. Do we measure success by efficiency or effectiveness? Another one that might be confusing to you. Efficiency is all about multitasking, doing as many things as possible at the same time, with the, in, the, in the shortest amount of time, with the fewest resources possible. The problem is, that is not a principle taught in Scripture. Nor is it how Jesus conducted his own ministry. He was one of the most inefficient ministers I've ever studied. And his disciples had issues with that over and over again. Jesus, don't let, don't get these kids out of here. And he's like, no, 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 let the kids come, but it'll slow us down. And Jesus is like, you're missing it. Why is this, this woman wasting all this fine ointment on his feet? What is she doing? Such, such a poor, shut up, Judas. You're missing it, right? You're missing it. No, was that an efficient use of the ointment that she poured over his feet? Was that an efficient use of his time with those children? No, but it was effective. And that's what Jesus is looking for. So do we, vow, do we measure our family success by efficiency or effectiveness? Pastor Chap Bettis, author of The Disciple-Making Parent and founder of The Apollos Project, said... I would emphasize here that the challenge of priorities is often not the good versus the bad, rather the good versus the better. Given a finite amount of time, energy, and money, what will you choose? 
This isn't often about good versus bad. It is almost always about good versus better. And God's word shows you the better. It does. You could practice the and then what exercise. What do I mean? When your kid says they want to join a sports team next year, you say, and then what? They might say, well, then I'll get better at the sport and get to hang out with my friends more. And then what? Well, maybe I'll get to play on the court more. And then what? Well, then maybe I'll get a scholarship and go to college. And then what? And then what? And then what? Because at some point, that line needs to trace to what? What does God's word say? Do all to the glory of God. If the and then what doesn't get you there, son, then the answer is no. The answer is no. Our and then what always has to get to his glory. It's the why versus the what. There's not enough why guys these days. We need more. More people asking why. Lastly, and again, the order is purposeful. I'm telling you right now, some of you who suffer from efficiency disease are going to try to jump to number three without doing numbers one and two, and it's going to be a disaster. You do this in order. And by the way, when you have these conversations with your kids, make it very clear that it is, it is an open and honest conversation to have with everybody and that there will be no punishments resulting from the conversation because your children see the inconsistencies in your life oftentimes better than you do. And you need to give them the freedom to address that and pray that God gives you the ears to hear it. Plan a family vacation or getaway solely for the purpose of spiritual growth and strengthening relationships with each other and the Lord. This is not, I repeat, not, I should have capitalized all three of those letters. This is not a program full of activities. Stop it. The goal is to slow down, get free of distraction and commotion. Design the trip around the following. Daily times for both individual and family devotions. Restrict the use of electronic devices to actual need, emergency use only. This should apply to parents as well as children. Establish tech-free zones and times. And then based on the results of doing number one and two, discuss what items need to be removed from the list of family commitments. What family routines or practices need to be revised so that it better implements biblical principles or God's value system. And what can be added to demonstrate the family's commitment to God as their top priority? You could consider your own investment in his local church. The, high, the, the teachers at Delaware Christian School under the leadership of Jane Minor have been reading a book called Teaching Redemptively by Donovan Graham, who spent 40 years as a secondary and college teacher. He says the following, Our controlling beliefs are not always consistent with our professed beliefs, however. Sometimes our behavior exposes contradictions between what we say we believe and the beliefs that actually control us in a given situation. Few people would be openly content with such inconsistencies, and this should be especially true of Christians who are called on by God to live a walk that matches our talk. And parents and grandparents, that's what our children need. They don't just need to hear us say we love the Lord, they need us to see us live that love. that that professed belief is a controlling belief, that our walk matches that talk. He goes on to say that the task of true education is the de the develop, to develop knowledge of God and his created reality and to use that knowledge in exercising a creative, redemptive dominion over the world in which we live. However, lastly, 
He says, such an outcome can be attained only by loving God and communing with Him, resulting in the wholehearted worship of God. We want that kind of outcome to be the experience of Delaware Christian School. But our experience at Delaware Christian School is at the mercy of the experience going on in the homes of our families. Delaware Christian School is only as strong as our families are. We need you, parents and grandparents. Your children need you. And as much as we have the highest hopes and dreams for living out the DCS way every day throughout the school year, it will not happen without you living the DCS way in your home. The solution won't be found in our schools or even our churches. For schools can teach the truth and churches can preach the truth, but unless that truth is lived and demonstrated in the homes, the truth often falls upon ears that do not hear. The mistake many parents make isn't overestimating their influence, but underestimating it, and therefore failing to steward it to its maximum God-designed potential. So I guess what I'm saying is, we're like Home Depot. Back in the day, they made a killing on a clever phrase where they said, you can do it, we can help. That's us. Parents, you need to do this discipleship thing, and you can do this discipleship thing. We can help. But that's about it. What we can't do is do it for you. It's just not God's design. John MacArthur said, It's difficult to see how Christianity can have any positive effect on society if it cannot transform its own homes. May God do that transformative work in all of our homes.